Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast may contain strong language and matter of an aggressively artistic nature. Bringing you insightful interviews from industry insiders across the arts. This is Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Hello, and welcome to Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Danielle Taranto has for some time now been a powerful player in that roiling crucible of theatre that exists in London, but off the West End. Leaving behind a career as a regularly spotted character actress on British TV, often in the world of sitcom, she co-founded the Menia Chocolate Factory Theatre in London Bridge with artistic director David Babani in the early 2000s, helping to lay the foundations for one of the most important and respected off-West End producing houses in the country. Leaving over a decade ago, she founded her own independent production company under her own name, and is a multi-award-winning producer, largely of ambitious musical theatre on a small scale. Notable productions include Titanic the Musical, the UK premiere of the musical version of Grey Gardens, starring Sheila Hancock and Jenna Russell, and the hugely acclaimed 2016 production of Ragtime. She has a particular association with the Charing Cross Theatre and Southwark Playhouse, and is firmly established as one of the most respected and daring producers on the London scene. When we spoke recently, we started out by talking about her early life and where theatre first made its mark. Danielle, tell us a little bit about your early life. What what sort of background did you come out of? Well, um, nothing theatrical whatsoever, um, funnily enough. Although, I say that, although I did find out that my father trained as an actor in Australia where he grew up. But I only found that up when I got into drama school because <laughs> I think it was something he, he something he didn't pursue. So maybe then when he, when he there was an inkling that I might go into it and everyone thinks being an actor is a stupid job for a grown up, right? Mm. So maybe he just put that to one side and didn't tell me until, so, but, but no, the reality is not from a theatrical background. Um, I grew up uh, uh, in a, we, we weren't particularly affluent. We didn't, we didn't get, go to the theatre very much. I was just very lucky that the school that I went to for primary school, there was an incredible teacher who just, I mean, she pushed it. I, I, I guess she pushed everyone, but I felt like I was, she, she saw something in me. But really from there, I decided that theatre was, was uh, there was no, nothing else really for me. And she, she saw that and, and pushed me. There was never a question of me not continuing my academic life. And I did it all the way up to A-levels. Um, that, that was never even a, a question mark, but there was always, I always knew what I was going to do. And I think I felt very lucky about that because I think lots of people even get to university level and don't quite know where it's going to end up. Um, so, yeah, so for me, I felt that I'm very, very fortunate that I was, um, that I sort of had a, a, a drive and a passion from, from four years old. Yeah, That's ridiculous. Yeah. And you, um, did you go straight from school then into drama school? Whereabouts did you train? Um, yeah, so I went, I, well, I took a year off to raise money because in those days, grant, there, there was no such thing as, you know, it wasn't a proper, it wasn't, it wasn't looked on in the same way. Um, so I took a year off to raise some money. But no, I went to Guildhall School of Music and Drama and trained in an act, a classical acting course, um, which is interesting that, you know, no music, I mean, we did a musical in our final year, but it wasn't a musical theatre training. Interesting that number one, Guildhall is mostly known for its music course, of course. And number two, that I've ended up my career doing, producing mostly musical theatre. 
Um, but they were neither of the two things that sort of crossed my path when I was training to be an actor, or in, in, indeed in my in my acting life. Uh, and for those watching who who um, don't know you personally, that um, you you did as you say, you started out as an actress. You have now would now be best known as a producer. What what prompted the shift? Um, several things. Um, I became an actor because I love theatre, and most of my career was a film and telly. Uh, which was lovely for the bank balance, but it didn't feed my soul in the same way. Um, I was rarely on stage, and if, but every time I did those, those, those few moments when I did get a theatre job, I just, oh God, I realised why I wanted to do it and why I was doing it in the first place. And it was, um, yeah, it, 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 I'm, every time I did it, I missed, missed the fact that I wasn't doing it more often. Uh, and I did a lot of those 1990s sitcoms that sort of, we, I used to joke, I mean, it's terrible things, I, and I was very grateful for doing them. And looking back on them, they've brought me great fondness. But at the time, it was sort of same script, different denim jacket is how it felt. <laughs> Roughly the same. Um, and anyway, and I was doing this series for Sky. I was just about to turn 30. I was doing a big series for Sky. And I had one of those sort of sit down and talk to yourself moments. Where I thought, can I imagine myself doing this when I'm 40? Is this the conversation I'm going to be having with myself? And it suddenly seemed a bit ludicrous. Um, so I, I finished that contract and just decided that was that. And I wanted to somehow get back to theatre. I certainly didn't leave acting knowing that I was going to become a producer. Um, that sort of came, I sort of fell into it. I don't think a lot of people really know what a producer is. Um, and, I and I didn't know what a theatre producer was because I hadn't, I'd hardly worked in theatre. Um, I, I knew that I was very good in numbers. I knew that I was um, a megalomaniac control freak. Um, so, uh, it sort of it sort of fell upon me, if you like. But having produced my first show, I thought, "Oh, this is what it's going to be from now on," and everything sort of fit, fit into place and haven't looked back. Do, oh, do you have just as you know, almost more of my own interest than anything else? Because I, I know I find it quite difficult when I get asked the question. Do you now have a set answer you give when somebody asks what a producer does? Um, it, it sort of depends. Actually, funnily enough, it's, it sort of depends who asks. Um, it's mainly actors, maybe graduating actors who ask, because, you know, and the, the answer to that is, well, everything. Yeah. <laughs> can, we, can we move on now? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose that, that, and also this sort of, it, it, more recently there's been this new wave, haven't there, a sort of how we describe producers, there's such a thing as a creative producer, which I've never really understood what that meant, you know, what is someone who isn't a creative producer if they're a producer? So I didn't re don't really understand the terminology, but, you know, it is, it is changing, and as more people as productions involve more and more people, I suppose different titles have to be given out. But the way I describe it is if that's the pyramid, the producer's at the top and everything that comes below it has come from the producer in some form or other. And of course, I mean, we'll come on to your own um, business, your solo business as a producer, but you um, was co-founded the, the Chocolate Factory. Um, tell us a bit about, about that story and what's, what were the challenges of setting up what what is now, of course, one of the most well-regarded off West End theatres? I mean, it was a glorious thing. Again, it was one of those sort of things we sort of stumbled upon. I don't actually talk much about the Chocolate Factory anymore. I sort of, after a decade of not being there, I sort of drew a line under it. But I know people are interested. It was, um, it was, I've never, I've never before walked into a building and felt so immediately like I needed to be there. It was an extraordinary feeling. Um, and, and actually, we, when we, you, as, you, as you probably know, you come in through the building, through the restaurants. Yeah. And just, even, even that room, which, you know, I mean, ended up being such an important part of our business, but that wasn't what we were there for. Um, it just, I thought, this is, there's something palpable and visceral and, and very compelling about this. And it was one of those things that I thought, I walked in and thought, I'm not leaving this place and I don't know why and I don't know how. <laughs> but no setting up was extraordinary I mean we had we had absolutely nothing when we started the theatre when we took it over had a basic lighting rig and a few seats and you know a, a basic setup but by, by no means what, what it ended up being um, and, and we had a couple of desks we didn't I think we didn't I seem to remember the, like really early on when we first got the keys like eating pizza on the floor sitting on the floor because we didn't yet have chairs <laughs> And we just sort of chucked together. You know, we were very lucky that the landlord uh, gave us a, a grace period where we, had, we didn't pay much rent um, and also provided us with ba the basics. So we think we've got a couple of computers, we got a, you know, some office furniture and off we went. 
Um, it, looking back on it, it seems ridiculous. But I think, you know, when you're young and when you're given an opportunity like that, you don't think, you just do. Um, so we just sort of dive straight in. I don't, I, did, I, only, I don't think I had a day off in a year. Um, but that was fine because we made something. We were creating something with our bare hands. If, we, if the two of us weren't there, I mean, we had two other staff that we had to have at the start. We had someone who sort of looked after box office and, and, and obviously we had the restaurant staff. But we just did it ourselves. We just got on with it. And it was glorious and awful and brilliant and terrible and wonderful and would never do it again and can't wait to do it again. <laughs> and um, now, of course, you know, so well, since, since was it 2006 he left there, yeah. um, uh, I suppose, I mean, the, there's the question of what, what prompted that move, but also have you found since then basically not having a dedicated space to call your own. Has that been a blessing or a curse or both for you? A bit of both, really. Um, I mean, there's something incredibly comforting knowing that you don't have to join a queue for programming. You know, your building, it's right there. And also just the simplicity things of knowing where everything is and knowing how everything works, as opposed to having to go through that every time you enter a new venue. On the flip side of that, I'm a massive believer that shows tell you where they live. And if that's the case, you are sort of defined by the space that you're playing in. And, you know, the Chocolate Factory is, is extraordinary in its ability to morph into whatever you want it to be. However, you can't get away from the fact that there's pillars. You can't get away from the fact that the ceiling is low. So there are certain things that you just simply couldn't do there. And certainly some of the shows that I've gone on to do as a free, as, since I've been freelance would never have worked in that space. I, I just simply wouldn't have put them there. So I think, um, I mean, I have to be honest, I think, I think as much as it was one, as much as having a space was wonderful, I am happier and freer not being. Although the, 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 the waiting 18 months to get a bloody slot drives me mad sometimes. <laughs> what, what are the must-haves that a project needs to attract your attention as a, as a producer? Um, or do you go out looking rather than taking pictures? It, there is no, there's no, there is no hard and fast answer to that. Um, often I'm, I, it's, I'm rarely sitting twiddling my, well, taking the current climate out of, because at the moment everyone's just sitting twiddling their thumbs. I rarely go, I wonder what I'm going to do next. I'm inundated with projects that are sent to me. So it's normally about what order are we going to do them? When are we going to get something? Um, as opposed to actively having to go out and search for what the next project's going to be. Um, I'm, if it's a new piece, um, I don't, it's, it's such a hard question to answer because it's that thing, it's that thing that makes you excited that you don't know what it is. In the good old days, we would have called it the X factor, but we're not allowed to use it. can't do that now. <laughs> completely wrong. But that, that magic, and, and some, I can't, you can't really put it into words. So if it's a play, it's just something that absolutely punches you in the solar plexus. Um, and it, you know, doesn't have to I mean I, I tend to and you know I often joke that if they're not crying at the end of one of my shows then I've failed so I am personally more drawn to to sort of to that element but that doesn't mean to say that I haven't done broad comedy and loved it mm. um but there's I don't know it's an essence it's a thing it's a something that I can't put my finger on for musicals it's slightly different for musicals it's, it's I'm absolutely drawn by the music so for new work the, it, it's just an understanding that the musical the, the composer's voice speaks to me in some way and sort of goes so I listen to it via my heart rather than via my brain um but I'm much more inclined to, I, I I would I can't think of a situation where I would take on a musical that the book was amazing but the music the music didn't do something to me I can't think of a situation where that would be the case I mean it's always about the music for me for a musical I suppose I mean I, I certainly associate you with, with bringing life to musicals that are either entirely new or maybe new to the UK and doing so in, in rather sort of uh, intimate settings quite often. Um, what, what is it, is there something particular that appeals to you about producing really ambitious musical theatre in off West End spaces? Um, yes, I think it's really important to say that it's not, that we don't, we don't, that there's a real reason for doing it. It's not just we love that, then we'd like to do it, but we can't afford to do it with the West End or we couldn't get the rights to the West End or the West End wouldn't have room for us. So therefore let's just shoehorn it in and try and make it into something. It's, it's very specific. And there are certain shows that I absolutely adore that simply just wouldn't work with that treatment. 
Um, I think a lot of times, I mean, some of the big revivals that we've done, um, they've been so overblown on Broadway, mainly Broadway. I think the shows all often become a little bit more compact when they come to London. But I think sort of that idea of just, you know, chucking money at it so that it will look shiny so that we can sell it. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested in, if you strip away all of that, just come back to the grassroots, what is the story? Um, and, and if you expose the, the heart of it, what are you left with? And is it more, actually more interesting than what you were trying to cover it up with? So all of the shows that we've done small, if you like, big shows done small, it's been about stripping away all the big, because actually, of it is, you know, Mac and Mabel's a perfect example. It's a two-hander. It just happens to be surrounded by a bunch of other characters, but it's a two-hander. So it doesn't need all that stuff, you know. And, I, and I'm a big believer as well in letting the audience do the work. Let the audience use their imaginations and fill in the gaps and, you know. I mean, Titanic, I'm sure we'll talk about Titanic at some point because it's the show that I cannot sink, thank the Lord. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Maury Yeston always said, I didn't write a musical about a boat. You know, you don't need to put that set on stage. You know, first of all, no since the James Cameron movie came out, no amount of money in the world is going to create something that's going to make it look like what you want it to look like anyway. But also, it's not about that. It's about the people who went through something. And, but, and you don't need to, 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 to demonstrate that. Um, you know, much more interesting for the audience to use their imagination. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I remember sitting with Southwark on press night of Grey Gardens and thinking right. that, you know, you, it would be very easy to make that huge, but actually it's the people that are huge in that. I mean, it's, you can't get away from those personalities. No, and I think that's right. I think a lot of times, you know, I mean, the old adage, you know, you come away seeing, humming the, the set. And yeah. I think that's, you know, that's, I'm much, I think myself and Tom Sutherland, who I work with a lot, um, we're much more interested in it, none of that, you know, just, I, if a, sh a show should never really be better than it is in the final run through in the rehearsal room. Yeah. You can't nail it then. All the other stuff isn't going to help. Um, I know certainly in terms of, talking about those working environments and expanding that slightly um i mean our our company came about mainly because i mean I, again i sort of fell into producing by accident because i trained to be a director and actor um but i'd done a lot of work out in the regions and out sort of fringy spaces and and sort of regional spaces where there had been horrendous exploitation on the part of slightly um dubious uh staff on it and I think there has been a, a sort of huge thing about, you know, ethics and producing in the working environment, that sort of thing. I mean, it's how, how have you responded to that? I mean, we've had a lot of, of um, uh, instances recently where we've had the sort of the, the, you know, Act for Change movement that started up about casting and diversity and, and treatment of, of, of staff. Uh, how have you as a producer factored all of that in? Well, I think, the ethics of producing. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think there's. I think you. It's and I think you have to sort of look at each individual um, case individually. If you're talking about, you know, sort of, I mean, the the the, the payment element of what when you're working off West End or lower, or lower, I mean, lower in terms of number of seats, not in terms of quality, um, is incredibly difficult. And I think what we could get away with ten years ago is just not it's just not would not be acceptable now rightly or wrongly i mean of course there is never an argument that no one should be paid yeah. properly rightly um there is an argument that says you know people should also be allowed to do what they want in terms of actors shouldn't be chastised for doing low-paid work if that's what they want to do um it's a it's a it's a minefield it's a tricky one you know that the reality is that most of the fringe would not exist if you know certainly in terms of musicals um, you know, just 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 basic maths tells you that if you know twenty five people on stage and fifteen people behind the stage are on four hundred and whatever it is a week, you know, times the amount of number of seats you've got times the the length of the run because these aren't finite runs; these are infinite runs. Sorry, um, you know, maths just tells you that that can't work. So um, it's it it is a minefield, but I think we've you know you you do what you need to do and you do what what is what feels right. And I think transparency is always the key, isn't it? Just as long as you're absolutely open about everything and there's no hidden agendas, you know. I think it would be, wouldn't it be awful if uh, 
you know, after having done a successful fringe run where no one had been paid, I came back six weeks later with a suntan. That would not be okay. <laughs> well, no, quite. Um... So I certainly think that's something, and, and I feel, I mean, there's been a massive shift in that. And actually, if you look at the shows that I've done in, say, the last two years versus 10 years ago, the cast numbers are much smaller because the number of seats hasn't changed, the length of run hasn't changed, the ticket prices hasn't really changed, but, you know, just the way we need to approach um, has, has changed quite dramatically. Um, so I think, that, I think that's definitely a thing that has shifted. Um, in, terms of, in terms of diversity in casting, well, I mean, I, it, it's ridiculous that it's even a conversation, but I'm, I'm delighted it is a conversation, and I'm delighted that, that people, you know, people who haven't looked at it more in the past have been forced to, and it's a thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think, I think diversity is a whole, I mean, we could spend an hour just talking about that, couldn't we? You know, um, because I think, I think, I think there's just so much to dissect. Mm. The simple fact is you're an actor, damn it, act. So what does it matter? You know, all of those things. It's that, you know, it, it should be about if you're good, you get the job, regardless of anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I will come back to, Natural things slightly um, later because we have had a number of questions that have come in from people about your work as a casting director. Um, we uh, talked about sort of changing circumstances in one sense. Obviously, we are now in a situation, as we've already touched on, where everything's going to a halt at the moment. We've got, you know, the, the industry is hanging on by threads. There have been a lot of commentary about it. Um, have, have you, uh, as a producer, been considering? alternative ways to deal with this in the interim or are you sort of writing it out or me personally no I haven't um because I don't know about you but I found I mean I think it's everything that's going out online is absolutely fantastic and thank god we've got something that we can watch but for me I'm not enjoying it I mean I'm enjoying it in a different way but I'm not enjoying it as a replication for theatre um I and also, you know, the simple fact is that that's not, I mean, apart from if you're looking at the NT Live, you know, those sorts of things, that's different. But, you know, the sort of archive camera at the back, however good quality is, even if there's a couple of cameras and a bit of edit, it was never meant to be seen in this way. Um, so I think, I think, and I think it's brilliant that it's there and I know it's making a lot of people very happy. For me personally, I, that's, it just, it doesn't interest me in the same way. Um, so I, so no, I haven't been necessarily thinking about what are we going to do if, because we will bounce back. God knows what it's going to look like and how long it's going to take, but there will be something at the end of it. And God's sake, theatre has been around since people picked up a stick and drew on the wall of caves. So it's not, you know, it's, it's a scary time and, and people have a right to be worried, um, but it's not forever. It's not forever. And I certainly understand. I think it's, I think it's worse for, for, for actors and technicians and musicians and those sorts of folk who are at, who are relying on us and we're okay because it's all just you know we we will decide how we want to and, and how where the money's going to come from and are people going to invest and what do people want and all of those things those decisions we're in charge of those decisions um i think for the people who have always been in the precarious position of not having of having someone else make their decisions for them in terms of you know where the work is coming from i think i, I think they they sh that i understand why they're concerned i really do in terms of um i mean because in the event that as things reopen and unlock um on the path sort of between that point and us getting back to some semblance of normality have you a uh, sort of vision for the sort of what you would like the theatre to be, what you'd like to be seeing during that period, particularly because, I mean, we uh, both work a lot with, with venues that are smaller scale venues that maybe may find it difficult to, to re-establish themselves in the way that they wanted to. Um, is there something, have, to have you, basically have you a vision for what you'd like to see once we reopen? Not just in terms of... of um, productions, but in terms of, of how you would like it to sort of re-evolve? I, I think it's interesting, you know, because I think there's two, I think th there seems to be two clear camps on this. There's one group of people saying all that the audiences will want is light-hearted fluff, entertainment, have a laugh, bit of romance, something easy that you sit back in your seat and have wash over you because we've gone through enough 
negativity. So that's what people want. Then there's another camp of people who say, absolutely not. We have done, we've been isolated from real feeling for so long because we're separate and we're individual. That actually the shared experience of sitting in a room with a group of people going through something deeply emotional will actually be more important. So actually it'll be, we'll go to extremes of sort of deep, emotional, traumatic, beautiful, grand theatre. Um, and I think it's fascinating that there's those, that those two things, are, which are so polar opposite. And I think, I think we're going to need both, right? And I think, I think people will make their own minds up. But for, I mean, for me, I've always been interested in, it, it's been about the shared experience of being in the theatre, not, not necessarily the, the entertainment in its broadest sense of the word. Um, so I would like to think that the, 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 the most important thing for coming back to the theatre will be the shared experience. Um, to sit in a room with other people and feel what someone next door to you is feeling. I think that's something that that's what I'm missing the most about well, it. So, so I will certainly be hoping to still keep pushing the boundaries of, and you know, not settle into, and there's my, my God, there's a place for all those shows. It's just not the sort of work that I'm particularly interested in making. And I would, it will be interesting to see whether, whether we will have to change what we do. Um, I, I, where, we're, where we are right now in the process, I'm, I'm hoping not, but ask me in a year. <laughs> maybe that, maybe that, that will have changed. Yeah, it's, it will be an interesting, an interesting path because we have no idea what the market's going to be at it's all. It's all what you said about the small, you know, the, the, where the, what's going to happen with venues. I, I mean, again, I'm only hypothesising. I don't have any sort of insider knowledge on this, but I wonder if it's actually the mid-scale that's going to suffer the most. Um, and because and the, the top end, I mean, again, I'm being so generic about these statements, but, you know, maybe more reserves, maybe more staff can be furloughed, so therefore more staff can come back. The tiny, teeny venues who have, I think, who have nothing anyway, have never had a reserve, have never, you know, they literally live hands out on a daily basis. I think, I, I mean, again, I could be hugely wrong, but I hope they'd bounce, they'd bounce back because of people's support for them and love for them. And um, I think it's the middle scale that's going to struggle. Yeah, no, I'd be inclined to agree. I think it's easier for, it has been easier for smaller companies and certainly smaller, possibly smaller venues as well to turn the tap off faster, <laughs> which therefore can keep whatever you have got in, in reserve. Um, I, I haven't touched on um, Titanic yet because I have, that was one of the questions that came in from the public, so I will come to that in a moment. Um, just before we move on to, to that and elsewhere, what ambitions do you have yet to realise, if any? So, could you know what? I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently, and even before the madness that we're going through now. And I think I've come to the conclusion that I'm not particularly ambitious, which is extraordinary because I, all through my 20s, I would have said that was the only thing that kept me going, was the drive and the ambition to be. I, don't I just don't think I really worry about that. Um, so I don't have a bucket list. I mean, I have, I have shows that I would like to do. I have shows that still that I haven't yet produced that interest me. But, that, but I'm, I'm not, I don't, I'm, I don't do it for awards. I mean, I know it's a bit... I, I'm, <laughs> I, I was made to do this because I'm doing a lot of these online things. And, and my, apparently I, I just had the most horrendous background and I was forced to do that. So forgive me. And I know it makes me look like a bit of a wanker. But... Um, I, 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 that, you know, I'm not, it's not about my name in lights. It's not, it's never been about that. My, my reason for producing is to make work. Um, and it's so, I, so I, in terms of, I don't, you know, that where do you want to be in 10 years? If I'm here, that's fine. Yeah. If I'm doing what I do and, and continuing to make shows that don't lose a shit ton of money and make, and make people happy, then I've done my, my job. Um, Having said that, there are certainly titles that um, that have yet have have either slipped through the fingers or have yet to be realised. So I think the ambition comes from that, but not not being more or bigger or shinier or you know. I remember. Do you know what people said after the sort of my first couple of years of of, of reasonable success at Southwark Playhouse, which is where I've done a lot of my work. Um, people said, "Oh, you know, now that you've made a bit of name for yourself, are you going to go and do some real producing?" 
somehow if it didn't transfer into the West End, it, it didn't really count for anything. Um, and I just thought that was extraordinary thing to ask. That's grossly insulting, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. And you know, you see that often in reviews, don't you? You know, this show is amazing. It must, if this show doesn't transfer, then there'll be a you know, travesty, and which is meant in really good faith and with a really strong heart. But actually, if it was meant to be in town, don't you think I would have put it there in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> you know, some of these shows that we've done wouldn't stand a chance and have been made and, 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 and created with, with, with the understanding of who's going to want to see it in mind. It's not just about, wouldn't it be nice if more people... Well, yes, it would be nice. Grey Gardens, good example. Sold out every single ticket, couldn't get in for love nor money. If I'd put that at the Adelphi, oh. there is no way we would have sold 1,500 seats a, a, a night. No. You know, it just, it's... So, you know, success is not measured in that sense all the time. Well, I mean, I've seen that there were some of the ones that have gone in entertainment. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first... The uh, first one that I was sort of not, I mean, it wasn't the first one I was aware of that, that happened to, but the one where I was sort of moving more towards this, and I, I remember thinking, gosh, that was a bold move, was when, and of course it went on to Broadway, and it was fantastic, but when the Chocolate Factory sent Little Night Music up to the Garrick, which is cavernous. <laughs> and what was charming about that was the intimacy of it, when I, I remember going to see it and sitting on the front row and having Maureen Lipman almost run me over in a wheelchair several times. But, the, <laughs> and, but it's, yes, when you dwarf something like that with the best of intentions, and yes. then it, it, yeah, no, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, because I'm all for the, the, the right of a show to have a life outside of, outside of the West and uh, on its own merits. Absolutely. Um, one of the people who's been carried away in 2020 is James Lipton, um, of uh, a great, great performer and director in New Yorker and, uh, and friend of Inside the Actors Studio. And he used to finish off with his 10 questions, um, which I think, if memory serves, go all the way back to a questionnaire from Proust um, <laughs> and were adapted from thereafter. I don't imagine Proust asked some of these. Um, I'm just going to run through some of those with each of our guests. So. I'm just going to preempt this by saying I am very scared about this. So oh, yeah. just bear with me. Go oh. on. What's your favourite word? Right now, discombobulated. And your least favourite? Unprecedented. <laughs> um, there's always a question that uh, can be answered however you like because it, it, it's, it's the wording of it that always gets me. What turns you on? Great theatre. And off? Bad theatre. What sound or noise do you love? The sea. And hate? Screaming children. What's your favourite swear word? Oh, am I allowed to say it? Yes. You see, I, the, the, the swearier the better. <laughs> No, I mean, I love a good cunt, but actually, fuck, I probably use more often. I think fuck has stopped being a swear word. Right. <laughs> it doesn't mean negative things for me. I just, I, I fuck all the time, if you know what I mean. I do. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I, I don't want to be one, but I'd be interested to be a lawyer. And what would you absolutely not want to do professionally? Anything to do with medical, because I, I, I can't needle. I have a pathological fear of needles. Um, if one goes from this, and this, of course, you know, one shelves whatever your beliefs or lack thereof may be, but if it were to prove that heaven existed, what would you like to hear said to you when you arrive? On the understanding that it doesn't. Um, that I, that I'd not wasted my life. Very good. That's that done. That's the ten. That's it done. Yeah. Wasn't too oh. bad. Yeah. You know what I think it is. I think it's because it's not those sort of quick fire things. You know when people <laughs> you prefer like, fish or meat. Those oh. ones throw me. I can't bear them. No, 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 no. I know these are these are slightly gentler. Um. So questions have been sent in to us. Um. Uh, I'll kick off. Billy from Bristol has, has contacted us to say, um, what was it that drove you on to bring Titanic to life and, and what is it that you most treasure from it? Mm. 
Hi, Billy. Um, so, the, the, well, the funny story is that Titanic was never meant to be. Well, it certainly wasn't the intention of when we started it. That I was, I've always wanted to produce nine. That's one of the ones that's still hanging in the ether. Um, and through a very long story, um, ended up in Maury Eston's living room in his apartment in New York, um, talking about something entirely separate, uh, a different project that actually never ultimately came to light, but that's why I was there. And uh, we ended, as the meeting was coming to an end, I said, by the way, what about Nine? Why haven't, why haven't you responded to us about Nine? And he said, long story short, not available at the moment, blah, 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 how about Titanic? And I said to him, well, that's all well and good, Murray, but we're doing this at Southwark Playhouse in a 250 seat venue, as if Titanic's gonna fit in there. And he said, aha, what you don't know is there is this reduced version that was made for a, for a, a production in upstate New York, uh, never been done profe professionally, professionally. Um, do you want to have a look at it? And of course, you know, my jaw's on the floor because the idea of being able to do Titanic intimately without the set, without the bells and whistles, to con you know, all the things that, he, that, that, that Tom and my belief about theatre should be, which is about putting a spotlight on people. Um, I said yes there and then. I hadn't even, Tom didn't even know that he was directing it by the time I'd agreed to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and so, so, that, so that's, the, that's the practical answer. From that point onwards, it's, the story is so, it's so poignant, it's, so, it's real, you know, and, and the question we get asked so much, especially when we're touring internationally is, you know, you know where's Jack and Rose? It's like, no, it's not. It's, it's not a story. This is, this is the true fact. And obviously there is some poetic license that's gone into it, but it's, it's, it's the real story. And by telling these people story every night, this, and then it's our recent history, isn't it? Mm. You know, we do about historical facts. It seems so far away and so sort of in the past. This is recent. I mean, when we, when we opened the UK tour in 2018 in Southampton, you know, you think that three out of 10 people it, had someone die. And though that the audience was full of their relatives, you know, and it was right there. It wasn't ancestral. It was, you know, it was so recent. So there's a there's a, a need to respect what the, those those people's lives. There's a, a, a desire to tell such an epic story that has such a simple heart. Um, but also the fact, you know, now with my producer's hat on, what drives me is it is a completely universal story. There's no one in the world who doesn't understand what it means to lose someone, what it means to, I mean, obviously not to go through a tragedy specifically like this, but we all understand it. It sort of sits with us. Um, it's also, it is a universal title. People know what Titanic means. Um, the, the, the reach is extraordinary. So from a producer's point of view, long may it continue. It's also timeless. It doesn't fit, you know, I can be telling this story at any point in the world and it will make sense. So, um, um, and I think the second part of the question was what, remind me what, 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 was what, what is it, what, is, what, what about that show do you most treasure? Oh, it's just that score. I mean, this, I mean, from, from an, from an outside point of view, the score, it moves me. I can't tell you how much, many times, I mean, we've been doing the show on and off for the last seven years, which I know isn't as long as something like Phantom or Les Mis, but you know, for a little show that started at Southwark, it's not a bad start. I could listen to it. I could watch it nightly mm. and I would never. But the thing I think that I've taken from it even more so than that is the family that we've created from, you know, the people who have been on it. I mean, we've got some members of the company who have been in every production. Wow. Um, and in fact, the, the, the gentleman who plays our Captain Smith has in seven years never missed a performance. He's never even been off. Oh. He's been on stage for every single performance of our production of Titanic that there has been in seven years. Um, and I think that's testament to how people feel about the piece, you know. So um, I'd, I'd like to think that anyone who ever comes to work with me in any show becomes part of that family, but never more so than Titanic. There's something about a shared experience of killing 1,500 people on stage every night. <laughs> <laughs> Have you, I'm, I'm just asking this, you know, off, um, purely because I'm pandemicing in Northern Ireland at the moment, because I'm with, looking after my parents. Um, have you brought it to Belfast? Yeah. 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 Well, oh, yes, it was. Was that the? Was it, it was the, the Odyssey? Was it? No, the Opera House. The Opera House. Oh, yes. Which was, I mean, it was absolutely glorious. I mean, the, the, my one gripe about bringing it to Belfast was the theatre wasn't big enough. I mean, we could have sold so many. It was absolutely rammed, um, 
and uh, I'm just, you know, absolutely glorious. But yes, it felt, I mean, to be doing it there and, you know, in, in where, it, where it all began was just extraordinary. And what I love about the people of Belfast is their fierce loyalty. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, it's always the, the whole slogan about it is, well, it was fine when it left here. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think, yeah. No, we had, a, we had a fantastic time in Belfast. Yeah, it's uh, can, it, well. I mean, I'm I'm glad that it was rammed for that because the opera house can be a nightmare to fill at times. You yeah. either absolutely pack it out or you're staring at empty rows, and it's but it's a, such a lovely theatre as well. And they're just about to do phase two of the refurbishment of it. Yes. Um, the uh, next question we've got in uh, Millie from York, uh, who said, "Have you any tips for young women who want to break into theatre production?" Um, and um, is it essential to uh, be based in London? Um, so latter part, no, I don't think it is. I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a thriving theatre scene wherever you're from, if you're from your country, you know, that there's plenty to be going on with. I mean, there's no denying the fact that A, London is the capital of this country and B, it is the capital of our industry. Um, but no, I don't, I don't believe, especially, especially from the production side, I think, you know, I think actors tend to gravitate more towards London simply because there's more work. But if you're moving into production, you're making the work, then no, there's absolutely no reason why you can't do it wherever you are. And also, let's be honest, look what, look what this, is, this pandemic's taught us, that we can work, literally work from home. I mean, I can be, you know, I'm, talk, I'm doing shows in China and shows in, in Australia and shows in London and wherever. I'm doing them all from, you know, my front room. So I think, I think in that sense, no, you, do, you certainly don't need to be situated somewhere. Um, in London for that. Um, tips for getting in. I mean, I think, I, I, I hope this is, doesn't come across as flippant and maybe I've been luckier than some. But the question that I, read, that I sometimes get asked, you know, what's it like to be a woman producer? And my answer is, well, I don't know because I've never been a man producer. <laughs> and I, I say, I don't mean to be flippant when I say that, but I think the most important thing is just, you know, know your own mind, know what you want. If you're talking about going, I mean, she says, did she say going into producing or production generally? Well, production generally, but I think that I, I got the impression, given the fact that we'd said that you were a producer, that it would be as a producer. I, I think just, just that, you know, you just have to have a very clear idea of your own sense. I mean, I, I joke that there's only four things that you need to be a producer. And that is, one is how to use an Excel spreadsheet. Two is to have some sense of zeitgeist, so knowing what the public might want. Three is knowing how to talk to people. Four is knowing rich people. Yeah. And everything else is common sense. And again, now, I mean, again, slightly flippant. And of course, if you're going to go and work for one of the big companies, you know, there are, there are all sorts of other things you need to learn. But if you're starting out on your own and being a freelancer, that's sort of it. Mm. That's enough. So just know your own mind. And I think the hardest one of those four, I think everyone would say the first three are easy, but then knowing rich people is the, tr the tough one. Who's going to pay for it? Um, but you've just got to be dogged and you've got to be determined and you've got to go out and find those people. And I think, you know, they're there. So I, I certainly, I think it's, it's a tricky one to give tips for because, I mean, look, there are practical things. Do the stage one course if you want to be a producer because I think it's a brilliant resource. And it's a brilliant resource to teach you what you need, but it's also a brilliant resource to open doors in the future just by having that mentoring scheme and knowing people. I think that's a really useful thing. And there are other, I'm sure other courses do apply. I'm not, you know, I'm not just saying that stage one is the only one. But, um, but the reality is just, you've got to, you, producers, we've got to make our own work, right? We've got to push, push from the bottom up and just believe in yourself and know your own mind. And, and the only way to produce is to produce. Mm. So just, you know, do it, throw caution to the wind, get on with it. Don't risk your own house or your grandmother's house because once it's gone, it's gone. But um, yeah, just, just, just self-believe, knowing that it will work which is a weird thing to say, but if you don't, no one else will. Um, and uh, certainly we will um, put uh, information about the stage one course, which are also doors down in the description below. Um, um, while we're on the topic of uh, stage one is a, is a charity for the, the um, set up by um, Society of London Theatre, um, you want to say something about acting for others, Danielle? Yes, well, I, it's, it's a fascinating thing, isn't it, that um, suddenly a pandemic or, some, or something like this opens your eyes to things that 
you have always been there and you've never really paid much attention to and suddenly you're they're, they're becoming the sort of the focus of our lives and um, so i'm doing quite a lot of, of work over this period to raise money for acting for others which i think is a fantastic charity that's it's, it's an umbrella um charity that looks after 14 other smaller charities basically helping people who work in theater so actors um stage management um well all all aspects of the of people who work in theater who are are having a hard time and quite frankly at the moment never has that been more 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 to the forefront and i think it's it's absolutely extraordinary isn't it? i mean luckily last week they've started the government has finally started even mentioning the word theater or the arts um i think there was a sort of a real flurry at the end of last week wasn't there with james graham going on question time sonia friedman's article and um, open letter in the telegraph um uh, vicky featherston and and um rob hasty being on uh, uh bbc bbc radio 4 and i think suddenly it's like we're gaining a bit of momentum but the idea that any funds for freelancers might stop in next week and the idea that theatres can't you know it, it, james graham hit on the head it's not a bailout we need it's investment I'm quoting him now, but you know, for every pound you give us, we'll give you five back. Yeah. You know, yeah. So it's not we don't we don't need help in the sense of you know, please save us, we're drowning. We ju we just need you know, we need investment so that we can help you. You you give us money for theatre, we'll give you money for hospitals. Well, exactly. Yes, indeed. And I mean, it was a it was a great intervention on James's part. I'm, I'm... Indeed. So forgive me, I've gone completely off topic because that's nothing to do with acting friends. But I think you know the fact that we are we are. The, the plight of freelancers in general, whether they be actors or, or, or in other um, in other um, fields, but the idea that f that we're not being supported in the same way that employees are um, acting for others and, and charities like it, because again there are plenty of others, but charities like that are going to be so vital in 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 the coming months and, and years. Uh, and again, we will put information about how you can donate. And um, also, if you are somebody who's been affected um, by uh, the pandemic and you are part of the theatre community, um, you can also on their site find out how you can apply to benefit from it. Um, and you also have a um, project that you've, you've set up yourself, looking to sort of create a create a song for the time, haven't you? Yes, we have. Yeah, I'm, so I was, you know, when lockdown first happened, I have to be honest, you know, when it first happened, I think we all thought, oh, God, this is going to be a difficult month, not realising that it's actually going to be a difficult year. Um, but I mean, what, what struck me was finally I had time. The one thing that I've, the, the one commodity I've never had enough of, suddenly I had time. So I just put a sort of shout out on, on social media saying, you know, who, if anybody wants anything, I mean, I can't give you money, I can't give you a job. But I can give you advice. I can give you mentorship. I can give you, you know, we can we can have a natter over a cup of tea. I've suddenly got, you know, that in plenty. Um, and you know, a lot of people reached out, and it was lovely. Some people didn't quite get the brief. You know, some people wrote out and said, you know, um, how do I get an agent? It's like that's not quite what I meant. <laughs> but um, but you know, no, generally speaking, and it was it was sort of very proactive. And and um, and actually, so one of the people that re um, that reached out to me was an actor friend of mine who'd had an idea about doing something for charity. And I'd been thinking about what to do. So we sort of pooled our resources and came up with this concept. We called it a song for our time, um, and it was for composers to write an original song, um, informed by what we were going through in the pandemic. Certainly, didn't have to be about that, um, but something that would resonate with where we are now. Um, anyway, so we had this nice idea and we thought we'd put it out and it would be, we'd record it with some West End singers and, you know, and it would be lovely and it would raise some money for acting for others. Well, little did we know, because this is the thing, you forget the power of social media, right? So we put this out and we used a press release and we did it formally. So, you know, some of the, the theatre sites got on board. Well, I think we, we gave it like a two week deadline. So it wasn't, you know, we weren't you know, asking people to, you know, for ages to write these things. We had nearly 270 songs submitted wow. from across continents. It was just extraordinary and so uplifting. I mean, honestly, I could have ended it there. There's this joy of these people. You know, and let's be honest, out of 270 songs, most of them weren't great. A lot of them weren't great. Um, but even the ones that weren't great, somebody sat down at a piano and did that for us, for this. And if that 
inspired them to do it or inspired you can't fault any of them um anyway so yes we, we we've got we've now chosen our song our song is in the process of being that the band are being recorded this weekend which is exciting and um, we'll put the vocals down next week um of course the tricky thing is what you do with videos um because you know of course we would love to make a beautiful music video to go with it that's slightly trickier um we've seen plenty of those ones on on social media where it's just you know people singing into their microphones and you know all the all the, all the, the screens that come up and um, we're just deciding quite what, what the visual is going to look like but it's very exciting um and i think people are going to love it i love this i think it's absolutely glorious um obviously um and we've got a fantastic we're not announcing who's singing it yet but it's somebody that everyone well anyone who loves musical theater will know and love um and yeah we want to raise a lot of money for acting for others and that'll be when are you aiming to release that when it's ready that's right. the moment. There's no time limit on anything. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Well, we will be sure to um, promote it on our platforms whenever it uh, comes out. Uh, so, uh, Betty from Camptown in Brighton, um, what is the biggest no-no for you in auditions? Uh, do you know what? All the answers to any questions like this are always actually answers about life, not about auditioning. Don't be late and yeah. don't be. Don't be so, sorry. And don't be rude. You know, the amount of people who are sort of dismissive of the person on reception. Like, you've no idea who that person on reception is. So just, why would you want to be, why in life would anybody want to be rude to anybody else? Just, so don't be late, don't be rude. Um, more specifically, um, have, just have done your research so you know what you're coming, I mean, sometimes that's much easier than others, but know, you know, if the director's in the room, Make sure you know, how, you know who he is and what, they, what they've done. Um, know your material. If you've been sent material, learn it. Um, make sure you're on top of it. Um, don't use excuses. But generally, just, just, don't, just be a normal human being. Because when we're casting, we're putting together a family of people we want to spend time with as much as we're casting the very best person for the job. Um, so, yeah, don't... I mean, again, it, you, you said earlier I was allowed to swear. My biggest advice in any situation is just don't be a dick. Just, just, you know, be a, be a person that I would want, that you would want to spend time with and you're, you're, you're far more likely to get the job. I think it's also really important for anyone auditioning to understand that if you don't get the job or you don't get a recall, it's more than likely because you're not right, not because you're not good. Yeah. I, I will also tack on my own question at the end of that. What, and feel free not to answer this, we don't want to, because what, for musical theatre auditions, is the song you never want to hear again? Okay, I, I, I don't mind answering that because it is completely personal and that doesn't mean to say that you can't, that another casting director would love you to sing it. Mm. But if you come into a room with me and you either sing Dead Girl Walking from Heathers or you sing Vanilla Ice Cream from She Loves Me, you've lost my vote. <laughs> Good to know. Um, Lila from Camden, do you ever think back to past auditions, possibly for other projects? and remember an actor that you want for your current production or you think oh, all the time yeah. all the time yeah and that's another thing just because you didn't get that this one doesn't mean to say you wouldn't be perfect for the next one so no absolutely and i mean i'm i'm auditions are hard right because we have to see a lot of people in a very short space of time and we do i mean the notes that we take during an audition sometimes you look back on them and think i have no idea what i was thinking I mean, sometimes I look at the back and think I wasn't thinking at all because it could just be flowery skirt. Yeah. Which is of no help whatsoever. But no, I think if you know, if you, if you do a good audition, if you, and, and by good audition, I don't mean, I don't mean it was, it was good as in technically good, but there's just something that some people just stand out. Some people just make an impression. And if you're not right, if you're not the right jigsaw piece for this puzzle, that doesn't mean to say that you won't be the right piece for the next one. Yeah, so I think a actors who, particularly those at the start of their career, who think that if a particular casting director, a particular director has seen it, I've had actors come to see me for more than one job, when they come back the next time, going, oh, I never thought I'd ever get sat in front of you again because you didn't want me for the last time round. You think, well, actually, no, I asked you to come in this time round because I remembered you from last time. Um, uh, Nikki uh, from Regent's Park said, is it how, how do, basically, how does an unrepresented actor get to grab your attention? 
it's really hard it's really really hard and you know what this has got mostly the answer to this is it's a timing thing because we simply don't have the time unless it's a massive broadway musical that is literally going to see everyone and they're going to do three months of first round the simple fact is we haven't got the money to spend on rehearsal rooms and audition pianists and all of those things that go along with it we just don't have the money so therefore we have to make some sort of cuts before we get to our shortlist of people who are going to come in the room and some of the ways we make those cuts are really frankly unfair you know the, my the first cut that i will make is i will look at your photograph i won't even open your cv i'll just look at your photograph and say do you look like what i think that character is going to look like cut you might so you might be the best actor in the world you might just not sort of simply cut in the first instance the second instance is who you're represented by which is awful because of course mistakes get made of course good people are represented by bad agents and vice versa but, but we have to make a cut some so i would say if i put a breakdown out to all agents and i know this isn't specific to the question i will come back to the question if i put a breakdown out to all agents i've probably got rid of 80 percent of people before i start opening cvs and then it comes down to have you got re relevant credits if it's if, if you're a young actor where did you train all the things that we would expect to be the, the, the criteria for making a decision so but in answer in, in, in taking all of that into consideration if you are unrepresented it's much much harder because the, because we make bad judgment we make judgment calls they may not be right but we'd have to make them and the bad judgment call that we make is if you are unrepresented it means you didn't get an agent and probably you didn't get an agent because you weren't as good as the people who did i completely appreciate the fact that that is not always the case but, I, but we just simply don't have the time to, to fill in the gaps. And I, I, I hate myself for saying it because I, I'm sure pe good people have slipped through the net time and time again. But there's just, it's, it's, it's about time and it's about money. Sorry, name? I'm so sorry. So oh, uh, Nikki. I'm so sorry if that's not the answer you want to hear. <laughs> well, um, it's, I think it's refreshing to get that level of honesty, really, because I, 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 you know, certainly I get asked this question, which I don't very often, but if I do, I try to be as honest as possible on that, that regard as well. And, and um, I, I tend to be, if I've got access to, to, to space, and sometimes if I'm working closely with a theatre, I've been brought in to direct by a theatre, they will give me space to, to do it. And in those cases, I like seeing as many people as I can, but I also don't. Um, I want to second what you said, though, about not being rude to people, and particularly with regard to receptionists and things like that. So I, I directed a small, small-scale thing a couple of years ago in a small theatre on the south coast, and um, when we were auditioning people, the uh, stage manager was—it um, was a—it was a, a pub theatre, and, and I was upstairs in the space, and, and the, the bar downstairs wasn't open during the day, and the stage manager sort of hung around down there to let people in. And there was uh, one auditionee who came in, um, and he came up, that came up to see me, incredibly arrogant, incredibly dismissive of all of us. Sort of phoned it in, and so we decided against, and we took a break at that point. And I went downstairs, and the stage manager said to me, "What was that guy like?" So I told her, and she said, "Yeah, he was really lovely to me when he came in, until I told him that I wasn't on the panel, and then we cut dead." And at the end of it, he had his little espresso takeaway cup and he went downstairs and she was standing behind the bar and he just plonked it on the bar in front of her, didn't say anything and just walked out the door. <laughs> I, hope, I hope he has a lovely career. I, so do I. Um, Leslie in Thames Ditton has asked whether you... Do you uh, this, is, I don't, this sounds like a deceptively simple question, but do you enjoy casting? Do you know, I've, okay, so... The, the, the overarching answer is I absolutely love it. I'm a casting director and producer. I mainly only cast my own work. So I'm having to, I'm, I, I'm not having to make decisions in the same way that a casting director who is doing it for somebody else is making. I can be much more specific. I can be, and also I don't have to, you know, I don't have to fight with anybody because at the end of the day, the ultimate casting decision is going to be the, the producer and the directors, not the casting directors, you know. A, a note for all you grads out there, you young folk, casting directors do not cast shows, just so you're aware of that. Casting directors put lists together to put in front of directors who cast shows. Um, so I think, so, so I love the process because I rarely 
have, have my time wasted by people that the casting director shouldn't have brought into the room because I am the casting director who brought them into the room and they're there for a very specific reason. Um, I also absolutely love being sung at. There's just, you know, first, first rounds where they can sing their own material. You d I, just, I just sit back, just having a lovely time. Um, because again, I'm not seeing thousands and thousands of people, so it's rare that someone comes into a room of mine who isn't good enough. Mm. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I rarely do open calls. Um, and I, I, I actually, to, the, to be honest, now rarely put an, um, a breakdown out to all agents. I sort of have my top 50 or so. Um, so I can be much more selective about who I'm seeing. Mm. Um, having said that, this is, an, again, an interesting one for the actors out there. <coughs> Everybody wants an audition at four o'clock in the afternoon so that they're all warmed up and ready. Ten o'clock is your best bet, I promise you, because we are alert and we are not tired and we are not bored. Four o'clock is the worst. The four o'clock slump is a real thing because all that happens at four o'clock is we want, we, it's, it's, it's close enough to the glass of wine, but not close enough to, to be able to touch it. Yeah. So we just cross at four o'clock. So keep that in mind when you ask your agent to change your time. The final question I have in front of me from Sarah in Lincolnshire. Uh, when you go to see a show now, are you able to just enjoy it or do you sit there dissecting? Um, I always, I go to the theatre a lot. Rarely do I go to see something that I want to see. That doesn't mean say I don't end up liking it. But most, most of my, I mean, I'm, I'm probably at the, in normal circumstances at the theatre three to five times a week. I would probably see, say that I see maybe once a month go and see something that is nothing to do with work at all. I haven't been invited by anyone. I'm not going to see an understudy. I'm not seeing a direct designer's work. It is purely just, this is something that I will put my credit card down and pay for. Mm. So most of my theatre going is for work. Again, which doesn't mean to say I don't love it. Um, although I also can honestly hate our industry sometimes because yeah. there's, there's a large amount of rubbish out there. Um, so, I think it really depends. I think the, the answer, to, the specific answer to the question is no. I think I'm always slightly working, even when it's something I've gone to pay to see for fun. Um, but then, so, but then the times when it does happen, where you are just completely overwhelmed by the theatricality of it, I find really take me by surprise. I remember watching the last time it. I said the last time. There's probably been times in between, but that's something that sticks in my mind is when I went to see Matilda for the first time. Oh, yeah. In my, that's not made for me. I'm not their core audience. There's, I, I would, I was going to see it because I wanted to see it because you know I want to see everything. Um, but I, I thought, and I thought I would enjoy. I'm, I'm not a fan of children. Small people should just grow up. Um, so, it, I, I, I didn't go in with any sort of expectations of anything other than just it's going to be a night at the theatre, which I'll hope is professionally made and looks good, and I can appreciate the aesthetics of it. I could not. I was blown away. I stopped. I felt like I was nine years old again. Yeah. Being for the first time and at the end when you know that everyone on their feet applauding I was I was sobbing not because of what happened on the stage but I was I was in tears by look at the industry that I'm in that can do that to, th to this many people mm. and there was something incredibly profound about that which I wasn't expecting at all no neither was I when I first went to see it and I thought it was one of the most magical things I'd ever seen I just, yeah. I would have happily gone back for the remaining seven shows that week. And it was just, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. I agree entirely. Um, and what a charming note on which to end things. Daniel Taranto, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure for me too. Dark Unicorn in Conversation is speaking to Danielle Taranto. For more information about Acting for Others, please visit actingforothers.co.uk. The show was written, presented and edited by Paddy Cooper, titled music by Curtis Batson. Special thanks to the estate of James Lipton, Charing Cross Theatre, the Southwark Playhouse, Danielle Taranto Productions and Scott Rylander Photography. The series is executive produced by Eleanor Sturton. COVID-19 presents one of the greatest threats to theatre in living memory. The performing arts need you now more than ever. Please, consider supporting our work by becoming a patron, with packages starting at just £50 per year to be a rainbow unicorn. Just visit darkunicorn.org. Science helps us solve problems, but creativity helps us cope with them. Please don't let the performing arts 
be another casualty of the pandemic. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.